I looked down and my left foot was completely gone. But like halfway up my shin, there was nothing there. But my toes were, well, anyway, it was awful. And I thought, some, like, I'm alive, A, and either this is it. And there goes Ginger. Like, I'm never dancing again. My parents are never going to be able to make it across the country to, like, say goodbye to me. If you're a person who's heard the word no from a boss, an ex, a team that cut you, a job market that didn't want you, an accident or diagnosis that left you debilitated and depressed, or felt paralyzed by any setback that you just weren't willing to accept, this is the show for you. Because it'll teach you what my dad always taught me, that failure is just opportunity in disguise. This is Matthew Del Negro, and you're listening to 10,000 No's. Welcome back to 10,000 No's. I hope everyone is doing safe out there. I'm assuming if you are listening to a podcast, you are relatively okay. I hope your loved ones are as well. And I hope you enjoyed last week's re-release with Melissa Ponzio. I put it back out there because her journey to being a professional actor was just so full of grit and determination. I felt like society could use a little of that right now. Speaking of grit, today's guest, Adrian Haslett, her story rivals any of my guests in terms of sheer will, determination, and grit. I'm not going to go into too much depth here in the intro because you're going to hear it all. I'll just give you broad strokes. She was number three in the world in ballroom dancing when she happened to wander near the finish line of the Boston Marathon in 2013, the year a terrorist decided to detonate two bombs. Now, I'm just going to leave you with that because she goes into such raw detail about what transpired that day. When she lost her leg, think about that. One of the best dancers in the world, and she lost her leg. And that's that's not all she overcame. Her story is known by many, widely covered in major press. She will tell us about a now-famous interview she did with Anderson Cooper shortly after the marathon bombing that really led to many of the accomplishments she's achieved since. This is a special woman. One bit of housekeeping before we start. Monday Morsels, which are our short companion piece to the Friday interviews, we've brought that back. Uh, There's not going to be a ton of promo for it, but if you are subscribed to 10,000 No's, those will show up on your feed. They're a nice little variation, just kind of a little pump up for you based around some of the themes of this podcast. So hopefully you enjoy those. And one note about the sound quality on this interview and really a lot of the interviews lately Due to COVID, we've been doing all of these over Zoom, so everything is remote, and it depends on the guest's setup, and some people have professional setups. They have their own podcast, or they're in the music industry, or whatever it may be. Uh, Others, like Adrian, they're, they're on with iPhone earbuds in their ears, and it still sounds good, but it's not quite you know, studio grade. So uh, apologies for that. But I think Adrian's story will more than make up for that. Here she is, Adrian Haslett. We can start by just by just uh, saying where we met. We I mean, this this is um, yeah. crazy times that we're in right now. And I'm not sure when this will air and uh, when people will be hearing this. But you and I met uh, as of right now, we met a few days ago 
on a panel through Brian Levinson, who has a podcast that I've done before and I think you've done. And it was called Obstacle Opportunities. And so we kind of just, I became aware of you and was completely taken by your spirit the other day. You're just such a uh, amazing spirit and kind of so fired up and you've been through so much. And yet I also want to get into, you were, I, th- I felt so vulnerable in terms of like saying, you know, it's not always, it's not always rah-rah. There are days that are tough. And so we, we can get into all of it. But yeah. first of all, thank you for being on the show. I appreciate it. Um, thank you so much for having me. I'm pumped to be here. It's so good to meet you. It's, yeah, so it's, I feel very the lucky. The other day, it was great. One thing that, that <laughs> nice that, that comes of this, it's uh, things like this, connections like this. So I guess yeah. we could start yeah. with, um, I'd, I'd kind of like to go way back to, uh, you know, you, you grew up outside of Seattle. Um, you can say the name of the town because I'm going to butcher it. Uh, what's the name <laughs> of the town? Issaquah. Issaquah. It's a, it's a mouthful. Issaquah. And what is it? <laughs> tiny town? What was the vibe it's there? A tiny, it's a tiny town, yeah. So when I was growing up there, so to put it in perspective, it's now the home of Microsoft. So Issaquah Redmond is now the home of Microsoft, which is what everybody knows. However, to put it in perspective, when I was living there, which was, was born 39 years ago, uh, and uh, it had one traffic light and uh, it had a, a prop plane field. So it actually had these these prop planes that would go up with these guys and they'd have too much whiskey and like have the planes go up in the air and do all these trick and these trick prop planes, they would crash and we would be like eating our PB and J on a, on a picnic blanket. That was like my, my small town on a lake in Issaquah, Washington. It had, um, it was eventually the, the planes crashed too much and people were going crazy. So, um, they closed that down and put up a storage facility, but it was small town. Yeah, for sure. My brothers and I, two older brothers, they're twins. Um, they're two and a half years older and, uh, they would ride bikes with me all over town and we'd go to the one little store. It was actually called the little store. Um, I think it's still there and, uh, and get candy bars with like our $2 and, and come back and go swimming in the lake all day. It was awesome. It was a great way to wait, great way to grow up. Yeah. My parents owned an independent bookstore and record store in Seattle where music is huge there. So, um, we also grew up in the bookstore, which is a good way to grow up. I was just going to yeah. ask you, um, you know, the art scene, because you're a dancer and a professional dancer. The, the, the little that I do know about it is that it's very hardcore, usually yeah. from a very young age. So I'm wondering how that came about. Was your mom a dancer? Was your, was your dad, were, were your parents in the arts in, or, or was there exposure to that in your town or where did that come from? Uh, so it came from um, <clears throat> my parents because they had a bookstore. We definitely did not own a television because those two things do not go hand in hand. Uh, it's supposed to be reading books and not watching TV. So I um, was, we were over at my aunt's house one day and my, we had all gone to bed, but of course I was like sneaking out and I was probably anywhere between like five and eight years old or maybe probably closer to five years old and snuck down to um, the room to my, my um, aunt's living room. And I like hid behind one of those, you know, your grandma's chair where it's like carpeted 
and it smells really bad. You know what I'm talking about? And uh, I was like pressed up against that, trying to not be seen. And they were watching TV, which enamored me because any kid is enamored by something they see for the first time, or it must've been like first memory of a television. And it was um, Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers dancing in the movie Cheek to Cheek. And it was the scene, I remember it clear as day. It was um, the scene where she's in the silk dress with the ostrich feathers, which is a funny Fred Astaire um, story. If you ever look it up, he hated the dress. Um, but it was beautiful and she was gorgeous and dancing. And I just remember thinking that I wanted to be Ginger Rogers. And the next morning I was downstairs and I have, um, grew up as a redhead and I like pounded my fists on the table and was like, I want to be Ginger Rogers when I grew up and had these giant Coke bottle glasses. My parents were like, did you sneak out last night? So, um, that was my first exposure, but yeah, definitely grew up around the arts and traveling musicians and um, traveling illustrators and authors were in and out of my home growing up. And that was a big deal, but no, my parents didn't dance. My dad will kill me for saying this, but um, he took tap dancing to repair an ankle because of a football injury. So I really get murdered for saying that, but yeah, he did. That's great. (laughs) Is he like a big, is he like a big guy's guy and he would not want that out there in the public? Um, I think now (laughs) as he softened up, as he got older, I think he would own it, but yeah, he maybe we'll see. Yeah. He's a sports guy for sure. That's so funny. So did you, so did you, um, you did it, they, they exposed you to it, but was it just like in the town and then you kind of excelled and then it led to bigger and more and more and more, um, seriousness with it or how, how did that work and how young was that? Yeah. So I, I went into gymnastics right away because there really wasn't too much dance in the small, in my town. And like, we didn't travel to Seattle, even though Seattle is like well, back then it was a 20 minute drive. Probably now it's like two hours, but with traffic, but, um, it, we didn't travel into the city very much and Issaquah didn't have it, but I took gymnastics and I loved performing on the floor or like doing a routine and having an audience. And it was very clear to my parents and I loved theater. So I did some dance in theater and then I did professional theater, um, and some acting, not like you, not that cool. Um, in, in theater, in, uh, in school and in high school and stuff and, and danced with that, but it wasn't, too serious. I was, I still had my head fixated on Ginger Rogers for sure. And I knew I wanted to either act or be on a stage in some capacity. Um, and then I was exposed to more theater. I had a teacher that was in high school, my humanities teacher, when history and English were called humanities and in like a block with the same teacher. I have no idea how it's done now. Um, and, uh, and, he exposed us um, to Phantom of the Opera was the first one. And I just was, I was totally taken. We would study the lines and study the music. And then we went into Seattle, which was like the biggest deal to see it at the Fifth Avenue Theater. And I was like, done. I'm dancing on stages for the rest of my life. And I enrolled in some dance classes and then audition, audition, auditioned to go pro after um, high school. I'd convinced my parents to take a year off, which has turned into however many years it's been. Um, and, and I went pro. Um, shortly thereafter. Wow. Did you play any yeah. other sports growing up, like team sports, or was it all this? <laughs> I participated in soccer, one game, one practice, and I like, <laughs> I'm going to say this, I found, <laughs> becoming out loud, um, I found like a flower in the field, and I was like, Dad, look, I found the flower, and the ball like went right by me, and that was it. It was done. <laughs> <laughs> was not going to happen. So you go, <laughs> but you're, so it's you're not my ver- thing. That's so funny. And that's actually great to hear as a parent because, you know, when your kids are involved in certain 
activities and they're not gung ho and into it. It's yes. you know, it's so easy to go, come well, on, I, you got to get going. And you, you hear a story oh, yeah. like this, or I've met so many people who, you know, they just, you don't take, some people don't take to certain things and they take to others. And you're, yeah. you know, your calling to be a dancer is similar to how I came around to acting where it's just like, it seemed like it was out of nowhere in retrospect. It wasn't, but it seemed like that. And then yeah. I was like, I have to do this. So my question is you're a voracious reader. I'm, I'm mm. imagining you were a good student. Maybe not. No, not at all. No, really? I was not a good student. No, I really loved being social. And I think looking back now, I, I think I just had teachers you know, we, we know a lot more now you have kids, you know, a lot more now about how people learn. And I was a visual learner. And so much of it was just study in the book and, and interpret, um, what you read and and memorize what you read. And I could memorize lines for a play in like a night. I mean, that really was never an issue because it interested me, but the stuff in school just didn't interest me. I was there for a social hour and I was there to, to hang out and it, I didn't apply myself like I should have. So it wasn't that I, didn't have an interest. I just knew that I, I would do something different than go to college. So I was like, oh, I need to do it. I hate saying that now, but, um, but I was not a good student. I passed. Did you ever go back to college or no? No, I never did. No. Yeah. And it still interests me now. There are things that I would love to do. And I, I found out, um, and we can talk about this later, but I found out after I took a, um, a test after 2013 to check um, cognitive skills and such. And I excelled at every subject and I got like a hundred in math through like a college grade. Um, and I would have never done that before. So it's funny when you actually apply yourself, how much that makes a difference. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think the desire yeah. to do something has so much to do with how people learn. And it's so, it's so fascinating for me to look at my kids, the difference between both of the kids to look at the difference between my wife and I and, and, you know, how we relate to, you know, how I related to school versus how she related to school. And it's, it's, it's really, you know, more and more, I think that that people have to find their own way. It's always nice to have some, something to fall back on. But I also think like, of course, if you know what you want to do, I mean, you're, you're going after it. There's a different path. I just don't believe there's like a one size fits all for everybody. Um, so that's, that's actually really. I agree. And and I agree. I think, I think for, yeah, I think for me, all the reading that I did, even though I was studious in the way of finishing books and, and really, um, being an avid reader, like you said, but the reading only exposed me to this world outside of, of school, as opposed to like, applying that to school. It just exposed me to all these different paths that you could take in life. And like being around people that were making money for illustrating books was like, I don't need to do, you know, there are so many other options. So yeah, it's one path for sure. That's actually really, really cool to hear as a kid that you had these artists coming in and out of your house and that you were exposed to that. And there's so much that you learn like a sponge being around people that you wouldn't necessarily learn in school. So I, I, I'm wondering your drive, that, that's what I took out of our, the panel we did together the other day. You have an insane drive. I know to be a dancer, you, you must have it. Uh, was that something that was always, like, would people have pegged you for the person that you've become 
back then? Or would they have said, no, she's wild and crazy and she's all over the place? That's a great question. Um, depends who you asked. My teachers probably would have said no way. Um, I had a teacher, I'll never forget it, that on a report card once in middle school said she, she acts like Sarah Bernhardt. She's so dramatic in certain things. She should be an actress. Um, and I took that to heart. I was like, this is the best compliment ever. My parents were so <laughs> upset. <laughs> they were so upset. They're like, that wasn't a compliment, Adrian. Um, uh, I, you know, I think my friends would say that, yeah, that I would eventually find my way because, you know, some people call it drive like you do. Some people call it stubbornness, um, to go after what you want. And, um, so yeah, I think, I think friends, the people that really knew me knew that I would find some niche to, to be able to be a dancer and, and, and marathon and do these things that I've done. So you worked with Dancing with the Stars uh, prior to the, we're going to get to, oh, I'm saying, okay. Uh, I just had a, an internet, unstable internet, it said. Um, you worked with Dancing with the Stars prior to what we will get to, which was April 15th, 2013. We'll get to that. But prior to that, you were working with them. Um, what happened before that that led to that? Were you touring around, dancing around the world? Were you around the country? What was your, your life that led you to dancing with the stars and what would, in what capacity did you work with them? Yeah. So I worked with them through the dance school that I was involved in and that I was a professional dancer for the school that, um, that allowed me to go pro, which was Arthur Murray. And I signed with them and then did basically, I feel, I don't know a lot about acting, but I assume it's the similar thing where you sign with a certain someone and then you, you work with them. Like if you sign on to a movie or you sign on to something, you do what they say. So, um, so I signed on with Arthur Murray and they were a school that, um, that was working closely with dancing with the stars and, uh, helping choreograph certain things and helping, uh, promote dancing. And certainly I was, uh, a manager at that studio and also doing pro dancing and traveling the globe and, and, and being able to dance everywhere, which was incredibly fun. Um, and, and a lifelong dream come true with Ginger Rogers. Right. So I was traveling and dancing and then dancing with the stars and Arthur Murray were uh, closely working together and dancing with the stars has a couple of charities that they work with. And I went out and was a pro dancer and would make sure that anyone who was attending the charity would be able to dance with the pro dancer. So, um, we would grab guys and, and dance with them and, um, and it was, it was a blast. I would also be hired out to perform at different charity events that they held and um, go down to LA and, and see the show. And it was a blast. It was oh, awesome. So you were not based in LA at that point. You were in Seattle or mm -mm. where were you based? You, in, in Seattle? I was based, in, I was based in, in Boston. So after oh. um, dancing in Seattle, I forgot to add that. So little detail after I was dancing in Seattle for quite a while, um, I had told my coach, you know, I really want to, um, I really want to go pro. I really want to win worlds. Um, I, I was already pro, but like competitively pro, um, not just teaching. And I wanted to win worlds. And my dance teacher said, you have to go to the East coast. Like you have to go to Boston. 
um, ballroom dancing is big in Boston. It's probably big in New York too, but in New York, it competes a little bit with ballet and and Broadway and that sort of thing. So he said, you know, you should really go to Boston. And I auditioned and, um, and I got it and I went to Boston and, uh, moved all the way across the country. I didn't know anyone here at all. I had no family here and I got hooked up with an Arthur Murray here and auditioned, auditioned to go into worlds and finally competed and competed and made it third in the world, uh, here in Boston. So when I was working with dancing with the stars, I was based in, um, I was based in Boston and they would do, they would travel dancing with the stars at that point was doing their traveling show, uh, after they would, um, like dancing with the stars live. Um, and they would travel all over. And so when they were in Boston, they would host fundraisers, uh, and some of the pros would come out for that. And the world, where did the worlds take place? The, the competition all they over. They took place be- in Las Vegas, in Las Vegas. Yeah. Um, they took place in Las Vegas over, uh, Halloween weekend, which is a blast. It's just as much fun as it sounds. Wow. Um, yeah. That sounds, so you, yeah. I'm sure it's, yeah. a, a I mean, growing up in Seattle and turning 21, like you've been there a million times, but, um, it is really fun and it's really crazy. Uh, Obviously, the goal is to be in that ballroom all day and make it to semifinals and make it to finals. But if you didn't, there was always a party uh, outside the outside yeah. the ballroom to have on Halloween weekend for sure. Well, so, what? Which Halloween weekend? When did you make it to third in the world? What year was that? Was that twenty thirteen? That, that was twenty thirteen. Yeah. Oh my god! So you you come in third in the world in ballroom dancing mm-hmm. on mm-hmm. October thirty first. That was or, or, or twenty twelve. That was. That was, so 2012 was Worlds then, and then they host like this little mini thing where you are like actually awarded your, your trophy, your ceremony, everything else in the studio in um, like end of May, beginning of April, which was of 2013. And on April So 15th, the Worlds in Vegas was, 20, was 2012. And, okay. then, and then fast forward to like it, like the ceremony in the studio where you actually are based out of in Boston is May of 2013. But March, sorry. March, March. Quarantine brain. March. Yeah, March. So so you you get the award in March Mm -hmm. of 2013 and then Mm -hmm. flash forward to April 15th, 2013. It's the Boston Marathon. You have nothing to do with running at this point. You're just- You're just someone who lives in Boston. You go out on the street. I was there. I was at Boston College 90 to 94. So I know the Boston Marathon. Never run it, but I know what a what a great day that is. You go out there and walk us through, you know, what what happened or what however much you would like to share. Yeah. So so yeah, you went to Boston College. You probably, you know, probably cheered for the marathon. It's a tradition totally. in Boston. And being a dancer um, and dancing anywhere from like 12 to 13 hours a day, I never knew what was going on outside of the dance studio or outside of um, that ballroom. So I didn't know anything about the marathon. I forged notes in high school and middle school to get out of the mile that I was supposed to run. I was not a runner at all. Um, In fact, it was in contract that we would wear heels even outside of the dance studio just to make sure that we're training our feet to always be in high heels when dancing. Um, so that day, that Monday, I decided to take a day off and really honor the, um, 
idea that I had, you know, just made third in the world and it was a big deal. And I told my boss that I was going to take the day off and usually a day off for an athlete is we as ballroom dancers, our athletes, we think it's cute that Brady has an off season. We don't have off seasons in dancing (laughs) and it's cute that he has a quarterback that knows all his moves. We don't, we just take a cortisone shot and keep going, but it's cute. (laughs) Um, and, and, uh, I took a day off. So I, I slept in and I made coffee and went on a walk and I, um, and I remember taking myself out to lunch and I just was exploring new restaurants and I knew like the quarter block distance from the dance studio, but I, I didn't know anything else. And I took myself out to lunch and I heard all this cheering a couple blocks away. And I thought, what is that? And all the stores were really empty to shop in, but there, the streets were crowded. And so I took a turn onto Exeter Street and then another turn onto Boylston Street and it was packed. And they were saying that I asked what was happening. They said a marathon. And I thought, okay, that involves running. I didn't know anything. I didn't know how long a marathon was. I didn't know the distance. I didn't know anything. And uh, as soon as I said that, I heard a blast uh, behind me. And that was the fin- at the finish line. And I started walking away from the finish line. And I knew in that moment that it was a terrorist attack. In fact, I yelled terrorist attack as soon as it happened, and which did get me investigated by the FBI, rightfully so. Um, I just knew because the ground shook in a way and the, the smoke was in a way that it wasn't fanfare or a blown trans- transmitter or um, it was just, it was too great of an explosion, too big, too loud. And I plugged my ears and I said, the next one's going to hit. And it did. And I was on the ground and, um, and I opened my eyes and I was awake through the whole thing. And I opened my eyes and I remember thinking like, this is it. Like this must be it. I didn't feel any pain. I could barely move. And all I saw was gray and it's like kind of dark, smoky gray. And I thought, this is it. Like this is, afterlife, if there is, is one, I don't know what, what is going on. And, um, and it was all quiet. I couldn't hear a single thing at all. It was dead silent. And I remember thinking like, this is it. I can't feel anything. This is like clearly something else hit and the smoke started to clear and I felt really heavy and I started to breathe and I smelled that my smell was one of the first things that I noticed. And you know that, well, I don't know if you know this, but the, the smell that comes with um, burnt hair, like on a, on a hairdryer or, or a curling iron. And I smelt it and I moved my arm and I started patting the sides of my head and it was really hot. And I later realized that my hair was on fire. I lost like three inches of hair. And I noticed that the gray was starting to clear. And that was actually smoke that I was seeing. It wasn't just gray that I was seeing. And, um, it was smoke and I started to move a little and I still didn't feel any pain. And I started to hear some things and screaming um, and some people saying things that I'll never repeat. And I looked down and I noticed that my right shoe was on and I tried to move my left foot and I tried to move my left foot and it wasn't moving. And I lift, finally was able to lift it up. It still felt like there was like a building on my chest. Um, but I could see that there wasn't, I just thought that there was. And, um, I looked down and my left foot was completely gone, That like halfway up my shin, there was nothing there, but my toes were, well, 
anyway, it was awful. And I thought something like I'm alive a, and either this is it. And there goes ginger. Like I'm never dancing again. My parents are never going to be able to make it across the country to like say goodbye to me. How selfish am I for coming out here without knowing anybody? Like I didn't know who I was going to call and I only knew dancers and, and I just was super scared. And then I somehow got over and rolled over onto my belly and I started to pull, I don't know if they call it, there's like a military term for it where you, you pull yourself with your elbows and your forearms. And I was wiggling just away from where I was. Like I didn't have a, I didn't even know where I was. And I don't even know what my destination was. And then suddenly someone picked me up by my shoulders and drugged me into what I now know is one of the restaurants here in Boston um, and applied, he was an off-duty doctor um, and he applied a tourniquet on my, um, on my left leg. And then also on my right leg, I, I had a gash on my right thigh. Um, and then I saw five of like, I, I started to grow cold and I started to close my eyes. And then I saw like five really hot firemen come in um, <laughs> the restaurant. I'm not kidding. They really were. My, my therapist would say that, that sometimes you see things that you want to see when you're in trauma. And I was like, <laughs> I stand by it. It was like Grey's Anatomy hot. And, um, <laughs> and they came in and put me on a gurney and I, I was at the hospital. Um, and then I had to call my parents and say goodbye, um, which was awful and just as horrific as it sounds. Um, and the because hospital you, re- pretty- you really thought at that point that was it. Yeah. And I was being told by a couple of nurses that it might be too. I lost a lot of blood. There was a point where, well, I don't know how graphic you want to be, but there was a point where like people couldn't even walk up to my hospital bed because there was just, it was too slippery. Um, It was pretty awful. Yeah. It was pretty awful. But I, um, I called my parents and said goodbye and then handed the phone off to a nurse and then to talk to them and, and finish the conversation. And then I met my Superman surgeon who has been a part of my life ever since. Um, and he saved my life. It was What's pretty his name? amazing. What's his name? Uh, Dr. Kalish, Dr. Kalish at Boston medical center. Yeah. All of us ended up in amazing hands that day. It took only nine minutes for every single person who needed to make it to a hospital to make it to a hospital. Part of that is because at the end of learn later at the end of a marathon, they have wheelchairs to catch people as you cross the finish line because it really is insane to run a marathon. Um, and, uh, and so they took those wheelchairs and started charging toward people who needed help and got them into ambulances. And they had the roads closed because of the marathon to get people to hospitals. And Boston just has, as you know, has a lot of really great hospitals nearby. So, um, I met Dr. Kalish and I was wheeled into his operating room. He's the head of cardiovascular surgery. And, um, it was triage at that point. Some people were being operated on by pediatrics and, and whatever, but I ended up in his, his wonderful hands and, I looked at him and he said, hi, my name is Dr. Kalish. And I said, my name is Adrian Haslett and I'm only third in the world. I want to be first in the world. And my foot's over on Boylston street and my parents are on their way. Save my life. And he said, count down from 10. And that's all I remember. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. It was a pretty, pretty traumatic, pretty crazy day, but, um, he's my, he's my number one now. He's uh, super close with he and his wife and, and their two daughters. One of them is a ballroom dancer now, of course. Um, that's so awesome. amazing. Thank you for being so um, vulnerable and transparent and telling that whole. No, look, I mean, it's like you really, um, 
I would imagine that that's not easy to do. And I appreciate you opening up. I appreciate, I'm sure that the listeners appreciate it. And what I'm interested in, because we can go, there's so many different ways we can go in the conversation. Um, I, I'm, I'm interested in, you know, when you wake up, I just think about myself and like, what I would call an overwhelming day or what I would call, you know, an overwhelming period of my life, you know, and it feels like whatever I could come up with in my memory pales in comparison to what you must have woken up with. Um, and I, I guess I'm just wondering like what happened, how did you process it and how did you, get through it and not only get through it, but turn this into something where you have just thrived as a result of it. It's, it's astounding. Um, and I know you have days where, you know, it doesn't feel like, you know, a highlight reel to you, but in general, you have to admit you have really grasped this and, and in a way that the rest of us, can definitely learn from you and your mindset and whatever it was you did. So I don't even know where Thank to begin you. with asking you. You're welcome. I don't even know where to begin. We can like, start with waking you, up. Yeah. What did you, what did it feel? What was, what were your thoughts? Yeah. It's um, I don't, some, t- some days I don't know where to start either when <laughs> after all that's happened. So I totally get it. Uh, it's, it's hard. Um, I, I woke up and my parents were on the other end of my bed. I, I still, every time I do one of these interviews, I tell myself, text Dr. Kalish and ask him how long that was, what that time period was between counting to 10 and when I woke up. And I, every time I forget. Anyway, whenever I woke up, I, um, my parents were on the other end of, of my bed and it's, it's actually, I never, I never want to tell this story without honoring the people that really need to be honored. And besides Dr. Kalish and that's the FBI, like the FBI have a reserve fund for when unfortunately trauma hits or terrorism hits where they, they get everyone together. So while my whole family was in Seattle, they have a fund and a way to get every single person on an airplane immediately and escorted to wherever that other loved one's person is. And they put my parents on an airplane and let my dad pace up and down the aisles of that airplane until it landed in Boston and got them there. And you know, they cover, like they cover it and they, they have a fund that does that. And really that I didn't, was uh, incredible. Yeah. Isn't that amazing? I didn't know it either. And I, I don't even think I found that out till months later when you're like rehashing, like how did this happen kind of stories. Um, but I woke up and they were there thanks to the FBI. Um, and people who are patient in letting a man just randomly pace on an airplane the whole flight, which I'm sure was hard. Um, but they were there and, and I noticed that, you know, I knew my foot was gone obviously on that sidewalk, but it was really apparent when I woke up and there was a leg that was longer than the other one in the sheets there or in the blankets of the hospital bed. And that was, whoo, that's hard, especially for anyone. It's hard. I think it's easy for me to say it's extra hard for someone who, whose tool of the trade is her foot. Like I'm a dancer. That's, that's what I do. Right. Like when people say, this is my moneymaker in your face or whatever, like that's, you know, don't mess with my moneymaker. Like those, that's my feet. Like that's a big deal. And as a woman who would stand up in front of judges in like a fringed bikini and get judged for her body, like it was important for me to look good. And 
air quote perfect, you know, whatever that means. Um, so it was, it was horrific and hard and the amount of, of anger that I felt, I think that's what I take away from those first few days. The amount of anger is insane. Um, and I can't sugarcoat that at all. I mean, it, it is awful. And, and, um, anger is one of the first emotions of the, of the stages of grieving. Um, and the amount of anger I had toward what was, what had happened was unbearable at times. I like threw things across, across the room. I, it was just, it was awful. Yeah. And you explained but, you the know, other day that you will never refer to it as an accident. You will never refer to it as anything but an attack. Yeah. Is that right? Yeah. I'm it's important. You right? Yeah, you are quoted perfectly. Thank you. Um, and uh, yeah, it's important to, one of the things that has helped me, I don't believe in the word recovered, but I, the, one of the things that's helped me along in my new normal is, is just naming things for what they are. So like, I'm not going to pretend that I wasn't angry and I'm not going to pretend that it was an accident or that um, it was just something that happened and just a little, you know, bullet point in my life. It was a big deal. And, and I think that's really helped me along the road of this new normal and, and to help me move through it is, is to name it. And I don't ever say the terrorist names and happy to report. I don't know how to pronounce them anyway, uh, <laughs> but um, uh, yeah, I don't. And, you know, I think early on it was, like I said, I was really angry, but then, you know, my drive, that drive to get through the hard parts really took over. And, and I think, you know, people walking on eggshells around me was not comfortable because I, I'm, I'm really driven and I don't like it when people walk on eggshells. And, um, and so I just knew like, this is what I'm faced with. And I've got a, it was really black and white to me. I could either buy a TV. I don't still don't have a TV. Um, I could either buy a TV and eat Cheetos for the rest of my life in an easy chair. Um, or and fitness is really important to me. So that says something, <laughs> uh, and, or I could try and get through it and learn to dance again. Um, and at that point in the hospital, I had already turned, asked them to turn off the like overhead background music because dancers can't hear background music without choreographing. And I didn't want to hear music, um, because I couldn't choreograph and I couldn't dance. So, um, I wanted to be able to enjoy music again and I wanted to be able to enjoy the arts again. And I knew that unless I could participate in them, I wouldn't be able to enjoy them. I wouldn't be able to enjoy them from an easy chair and watching it on TV. Have you found that, any? I don't even know if that was your question. <laughs> yeah, no, you're, you're, I'm just kind of blown away and processing everything you're saying. Um, have you found um, forgiveness? I know you're talking, not forgiveness necessarily, but have you found, I'm sure you still have anger, but was there any point or is, are you still something you're grappling with where you consciously said, okay, the anger, if I continue down the anger road, it's going to just hurt me more than it hurts anybody else. Was there any point where you consciously switched paths and went a different route? And if yeah, so, great, what, what, how did question. that happen? How'd that come about? Yeah. Great question. I think it's something I'm still grappling with. Um, it's, it's tough to, um, it's tough. I got therapy right away. That was something that I was headstrong on. I was like, okay, this is like, nobody, nobody knows how to deal with this. This is crazy. There's gotta be somebody out there. So I, I interviewed therapists like second week, which was, I should write a book just on that. Um, 
And uh, it was, it was awful that it takes a long time to find a therapist, especially when you're in your worst case scenario. Um, and they're coming into your hospital room, those poor souls. Um, and uh, I, <laughs> I definitely found therapy right away, which, which to answer your question, I think that made a world of difference, but luckily my, again, my Superman surgeon, one of his best friends is my therapist now. Um, and has been my therapist for six and a half, six and a half years. Um, and, uh, so he helped me find that getting past the anger or at least recognizing it. And again, naming it for what it is when it comes through. So I don't believe in forgiveness. I don't, for this, um, I don't need to forgive in order to live a peaceful life. Um, I just have a hard time forgiving someone who purposely wanted to kill me. Um, and, and I just, I just can't do that, but I understand that for some people that's necessary. You know, I think we all heal in our own way and, you know, there were what, 280 of us that were injured due to this. And I'm sure you'd have 280 different answers. Um, to everyone who, who, who would be asked the same question. Right. But for me, what's most important is for me to be mentally healthy and, and in touch with who I am and what I'm doing and, and, um, and trying to, trying to get through the anger. I took up boxing, which was really helpful. Um, (laughs) definitely, uh, it was really helpful. And, and just, you know, realizing that, that that's okay, that's an emotion. And the only reason I didn't know how to deal with anger is because I, I wasn't an angry kid. So like my parents didn't give me tools to deal with anger because like they didn't need to, I wasn't an angry kid. So it was just really, even my parents at that time were like apologizing to nurses and doctors when I would yell because they were like, we don't know. That's not our daughter. Like, that's not how she is. Like, I swear this is different. And so it was really hard for everybody. Um, Hence the reason I found a therapist is I didn't want to live like that. That's not what you want. But yeah, it's, it's a struggle still. Um, I, yeah, it's a struggle still, but not, not a daily struggle. Just every once in a while you get really angry. Like it's, I think I said this the other day on our panel, right? Like who get, who says that they've been blown up by a terrorist, even grasping that reality is mind boggling to me some days. What about anxiety, you know, in, when you go in a crowd or on the street or, you know, things that we all do, I would imagine you're processing it a little bit different than the rest of us. Uh, Is that still something that's with you consciously every day or is that something that comes and goes and just, how does that work for you? Yeah. Yeah. Good question. I, it's something, it's something that will creep up on me every once in a while so um PTSD is it's not something that um you know it's not something that I deny having I absolutely have it for sure without question I mean you couldn't not have it after something like that people that were across the street from where I was um still have it and um so for me it you know it shows itself in many different ways so for some people it's the place right so they can't go back or it's very difficult for them to go back to Boylston Street to and for those of you that don't know, Boylston Street is, is the finish line of the Boston Marathon um, where those two blasts took place. I had to say two blocks apart from each other. Um, and for some people, you know, it's, it's crowded places. And for some people, it's a smell. Um, for me, it's loud noises. So 4th of July fireworks in any capacity, fireworks for anything. I am, I'm a mess. 
I, even if I know it's about to happen, even if someone's like, Adrian, the fireworks are about to start. I'm a disaster. I dropped to the floor. Um, unsolicited fireworks that were going, that are going off for like random graduation parties that aren't during the 4th of July that you're really not prepared for. I'm a disaster. So, um, yeah, the anxiety level is, is huge for that. Um, if there's a, a sudden loud noise, if, if I'm at a, um, kid's birthday party, most of my friends know this by now and won't have them, but if they have balloons and there's a balloon pop, like I'm a goner, it's, it's very hard. I would imagine people that are in mass shooting situations feel the same way about balloons. Um, there are, there are certain things with sounds for me that, that just are very triggering and make me anxious. So if I pass like, you know, you're at Fenway for a game or something and, and there's a balloon character guy, I'm like, I'm like carpal tunnel. I'm like locked and loaded and my friends are like dragging me as far away as quickly as possible before one snaps. Um, so it's hard. Yeah. It's, it's super hard, but I don't, luckily I don't, live in huge anxiety. I, I do a lot of meditation, um, over the past two years and do a lot of breathing exercises. So if I feel anxiety coming on, I, I can breathe my way through it, which is something, if you told me I would be able to do that years ago, I would never believe you because I thought nothing would like make it better. You just, it's just a hard reality to have this like beautiful sunny day. And then suddenly, you know, your whole world changes. It's tough yeah, to say the least. <laughs> So your surprising turn from this, which I, I find really uh, inspiring, is that you never ran before this. You just happened to be there. Didn't even know what a marathon was. You, your life changes on a dime, and you come out of it, and you say, I'm going to run the Boston Marathon. It's pretty yeah. awesome. What so, the heck? <laughs> so you're pretty awesome insane <laughs> yeah so i mean we're i'm i'm i think i'm skipping time here for the sake of you know us not going on for 14 hours of you know but i because there's got to be a huge period between where you were and then running the boston marathon in 2016 but if you were hyperspacing us through that time period how did you get to the start line of the 2016 Boston Marathon. Yeah, it was, um, it, it all went, that whole time period went by really fast. Cause I think like now with, you know, us facing this virus and stuff, it's, you know, time is sort of irrelevant when you're going through any trauma or weird time in your life, time is kind of irrelevant. But, um, so shortly, you know, I want to say a week and a half into, um, into, uh, losing my leg and being in the hospital, uh, my mom went out to Copley square in Boston and ran into Anderson Cooper, but not really like ran into him. She like went up and like, was like, hi, Anderson and his blue eyes. And <laughs> she said, my daughter just lost her leg and, and she's a ballroom dancer. And I would love for you to come meet her. You'd really make her day a little bit brighter and better. And, um, so he did, he, he came into my hospital room and I was like, like trying to pat my hair down, like, like a cat, like trying, it was so awful. I was such a mess. And, um, we did an interview and he said, do you think you'll dance again? And I said, yes. And I said, and I'll also run the Boston marathon as a thank you for what I'm sure the world saw, which was an outpouring of support for all of us in the Boston strong community. And he was like, you really think you could run the marathon? And I surprised myself by saying, um, there was a time in my life where I wasn't a ballroom dancer and look at me now. And so I think I could do it. And, uh, I, 
got a running blade, which is the fancy name for um, a running prosthetic that, um, that you run in. I got one of those and I actually got it to do the jive a little bit faster because it bounces. I was not interested still in becoming a runner. And uh, Anderson was bugging me still. We, we stayed in touch and he was bugging me still about running the marathon. And I was like, shush, like, I don't need to, I don't need to do that. Like keep your mouth shut. It's fine. Uh, and then I thought I'll just give it a run around the block. And I did, and it was super difficult, but I thought, you know, I've got to do it as a thank you for Boston and everyone in the world who, who rallied around the whole community. And, um, and then I found myself towing the line in Boston totally undertrained. I didn't even know I was undertrained. I didn't even know really what training was. I had run 10 miles before that consecutively and that's it. Um, I'd never pinned a race bib on. I'd never run an organized race before ever in my life. And I was standing at the start line and the guy that I was seeing at the time, I saw me have a complete first ever panic attack. And he looked at me and he said, Adrian, what will get you to the finish line is nothing compared to what got you to the start. And I was like, you're right. I've been through hell to get here. Like whatever happens after is nothing compared to what got me here. And, um, and there I was and the gun went off and we went and ran, walked, hobbled, crawled the 2016 marathon. What was your time? In that mar- what was your time in that marathon? It was a, first record of 10 hours and 44 minutes and 30 seconds. Yep. And, and then you ran at the <laughs> following last. Well, congratulations on Dead completing last. it. Yeah. And then what did you do in 2018, two years later? What did you so run? So 2018, I trained really hard. I got a different running leg. I found a coach and a team and was crushing um, my training all around. And uh, I did really, really well that morning. Um, it was 18 degrees at the start and snow and ice and sideways rain. It was the monsoon year. Um, we had an early start in the para athletic division. Um, it was not competitive, but we had an early start and I was third overall and second female and crushing it. And I thought I'm totally going to win this, even though it was not a division to win. I just wanted breaking rights cause I'm competitive. Um, and then because of that weather that year, and it was ice cold. Um, I wandered by a medical tent apparently and didn't know my own name and I was pulled. So I had a DNF. I did, did not finish that year, but I would have, I would have basically won the whole damn thing. Um, and it was probably one of the most devastating running experiences ever. I, I think half the fields didn't even finish of like even pro athletes didn't finish. So many people didn't finish that year, but it was, it was really, really rough. Um, what mile was that where you were pulled? What mile? It was like 10 or 12-ish. Um, I, my brain was, the last thing I remember was running and I looked down and my arms weren't moving and I was like, why are my arms moving? Like, I'm a better runner than this. I know my form, like I can be better. And I was shaking like a leaf, but my arms were like completely stuck and I got pulled. Um, I was pretty upset. Uh, yeah, I was pretty upset for sure. So I, I want to, if people are listening and thinking this is, you know, this is harrowing, I feel like there's one more piece of the story that's kind of unbelievable to me, which is you're then training for the 2019 marathon. You're in yes. great shape. This yeah, is last, shape yet. last January to run last 
April. And what happens there? So I was in the best shape. I just, the last workout that I crushed um, was a really, really tough workout. And I nailed it. And coach was like, this is your year. Like after what happened with um, your DNF, your did not finish last year. Like this is your year. You've got this. And I was walking to dinner the next night after that workout. And I was walking across a crosswalk and I had the right of way and a car going 35 miles an hour barreled into my body and sent me like three car lengths into the street. And I crushed my whole left side. They ran into my prosthetic leg, thankfully, because they would have crushed my right leg. Um, my prosthetic just dented, it got fixed, but my shoulder was completely crushed and I was in the hospital for three months. So I couldn't run 2019, unfortunately. It's just when you heard that the other day, I just thought, you know, you, you are a a prolific speaker from what I understand. Yes. I mean, you you. you speak. I do. I do public speaking often. Yeah. So sought after speaker, your story, the thing I thought of the other day was, okay, well, this is really, I mean, this is, it's, it's, almost unbelievable that all of this happened to one person because all of those things I agree random and that it, but I thought well I mean it certainly adds to your story your credence and credibility and ability to I for one feel like this is when, true. I, when I hear you tell me something there's a lot more weight behind it because you've been tested you've been tested yeah. To, to the nth degree. And, and I guess the question I'll ask, it's really on behalf of the listeners is because we really selfishly want to know how do we, how are we going to deal if we are in yeah. a situation that's similar and, and it's how do you convert those experiences in your mind to not have them just totally crush your spirit? And, and you bounce back even harder. How do you, what, what is the process? Maybe it's just you and you're not even aware of it, but how do you like? Yeah, it, frame it's it? so tough. I think, right. I think in 2013, I had a, again, going back to that anger, I had a real, I had a real fixation on proving that I didn't deserve to die and that I could still go on, even though this guy tried to, ruin my life. Right. Like I had this, I learned to take that setback and be like, Oh, I'll show you, you know, whether it's to the terrorist or to myself, when I'm doubting myself, I'll say like to myself, like, I'll, I'll show you when you're doubting yourself, you know? Um, I always think of those mornings when I don't want to get up and I don't want to go for a run or I don't want to do this, or I'm too tired to do this, or maybe it's, maybe I've been through too much. Maybe it would be okay to go under that, under those covers that everybody says that I'm allowed to just hide under for the rest of my life. And everyone would understand if I needed to do that. Right. Like, um, I always think to myself, like, I want to, I want to prove that to myself that I can do it. And I want to use that to show others that it can be done. And I think that's a big thing for me is, is to show others that. So when, going back to 2013 and pre 2013, even I had no idea what, you know, I knew of amputees, but like, I didn't know anyone. And I didn't, I didn't know the word prosthetic. I didn't even know how to pronounce it. I didn't, 
um, know what a prosthetist was, which is a fancy name for a man or a woman who makes legs. And I didn't know the laws of, of what it's like to try and get a prosthetic and, and try and get a running leg. And once I learned all of that, I was like, I have to do something. I have to change the laws and, and, and show people that we're more than just the leg that we lost. You know, we're more than just what we don't have. And so that was a real driving force in 2013. And then after what happened by being hit by that car, the city, like I, I posted just some random Instagram thing that was like, Hey, this happened. I'm not doing well, like send good vibes just on Instagram. And I don't even had at the time, I didn't even have that many followers and somehow someone picked it up and I had all this huge support coming my way. And that really helped me realize that people were pulling for me and that the 2020 marathon would be waiting for me eventually. Cause it was pretty clear. I wasn't going to be able to run that year. Um, I couldn't even walk or get my leg on again at that point. It suffered so much damage. So, um, I think for others that are going through something like this, it's important to prove to yourself that it can be done. You know, like it's important to show yourself that you're more than just that bad day. I think that was a huge drive for me. Um, and it helps to tell other people that you want to do it. You know, you tell other people that you want to have that goal. Um, and I wasn't quiet about mine <laughs> to begin with. Um, but then I had a new goal in 2020 that came along shortly after I was hit. So it, um, then I, then I had no choice, but to pursue it. What was that goal? So after I was hit in, in 2019, um, and I was after I was out of the hospital and able to put my leg back on, cause I was hit in my shoulder. So I didn't have two arms to, at the time, my shoulder was completely out of commission arm. I, I couldn't even put my prosthetic leg on, so I couldn't go anywhere. Like I live alone. I, my service dog, he wasn't trained to put on my leg. He didn't need to do that. So I couldn't even leave the house. But once I was trained, to leave, once I was able to put my leg back on and leave the house, I had lunch with the Boston Athletic Association and that's who puts on the Boston Marathon. And I had been fighting and fighting to get a division for para-athletes to compete competitively in the Boston Marathon. And we didn't have a division. Um, we talked a little bit about this in the panel the other day, but we didn't have a division that was competitive because the Boston Marathon and no other marathon in the entire country, even the Paralympics, thought that we as amputees deserved a division to win a race. And unless you're in a chair, which is fine, but that's not how I run and not how a lot of people run. And I'd been fighting and fighting and fighting for it, which is part of the reason why I wanted to get that great time. Um, was because I wanted to show them it could be done. And when I ran, ran, walked in 2016, I was doing like an 18 minute mile. And since then I've, my fastest mile is a 603. Um, and so I got, I improved <laughs> considerably and, wow. uh, and I had lunch with the, with the marathon crew and they said, we have a division in 2020. We want you to win the whole thing. So this year is the first year that we'll have a competitive division and I'm looking to win the whole marathon. So it would go from like a last place to a DNF to being hit by the car to winning the whole thing. Um, and once that goal was put in front of me, I took to PT and recovering my shoulder and recovering my body to be able to hit that goal. Um, I'm just a goal-driven person. And, and I think that, that that really helps. And, and this being given this spotlight on the world's biggest race, um, which is the Boston Marathon, as you well know, going to BC, uh, to be able to be given this 
platform for amputees to show people it can be done and to run a really fast race would be awesome. Wow. And now, awesome to win the whole and now yet again, now this one, you're not unique on this one because we're all being affected by it. But again, craziness, this is, you know, the Boston Marathon supposed to be April 15th. And here we are. I don't know what the status of it is. I don't know that anybody really does, but now we're all locked up with the coronavirus. And so that's getting put off again. So yeah, yeah. what is your, you know, what's your, your advice to people who feel like, woe is me? Why did this happen to me? Why am I in this situation? You know, poor me. How, what, what is yeah. your, what would you say to them? Because I think if anybody is going to legitimately say that, it's you and you're not saying it. So, you know, if, I do say if, it if some I, days. I mean, I'm not, I yeah, if I'm in a situation, I'm giving you free reign right now to fly from Boston to LA and smack me in the face because you've been through the <laughs> ringer. So what, what, what is your advice for those people? Yeah. You know, I think, first of all, I don't think it's unhuman to think why me. I mean, I definitely had that. So I, I, you know, I'm, I'm giving, as we talked about at the beginning, right. This is a highlight reel of, of things that have happened, but I've definitely, you know, I've definitely had my moments. One of those times I threw something across the room. I accidentally swear it was an accident. I clipped an FBI agent. They were obviously doing an investigation on the whole (laughs) thing. I clipped him in the forehead, like straight down the forehead with a clipboard. So it was, it it left, it left us. We're still friends. It left a scar. (laughs) Like I left my mark on him permanently. So I, I think the why is me and the anger and all of that is common. So for people listening, don't think I'm immune to that, but yes, uh, there is a, there is a why me and, and all that. I think the important thing is to not unpack your bags there, like live there for a little while and then, and then get up and shower and try and, and try and wash that off because, you know, I think it's important to think, you know, why am I going through this? Why am I being tested? Why am I, why did bad things always happen to me? Um, one of the things my therapist told me when I said, why me, why me, why me? And he said, it happens to everybody. He said, it's just harder because none of us, I'm doing air quotes right now. None of us, a lot of us don't usually talk about the hard times. And it's, it's uncommon for when you meet someone new or at a dinner party or the times when you think everyone has it together, it's uncommon for someone to say, I suffered the worst breakup last week and I'm barely holding on. Or I, you know, was hit by a car a a year ago and I'm really struggling. So, um, it does happen to everybody. And I think now, you know, we were talking about this, Matthew, you and I on the panel the other, the other day, this is the first time ever that the globe has been able to connect with each other and is all suffering together. And a time when we can all say like, Oh, today, right? Like, I don't even know. And you say, how are you? And you say, good, but like, not good, but also healthy. So good. Like, I don't, it's hard to answer that question. Right. And, but for the first time, I think now because of this virus and this global, how it's having such a global effect on so many people and people are losing their lives every minute, you know, and, and it's scary and awful. But I also think it's, I'm going to word this wrong. So I hope people, realize that I'm just going to think out loud here and say that there's something also that's beautiful 
that's happening, which allows us to be vulnerable and say, I'm struggling because, because for the first time, you know, that the other person on the end of the line is also struggling, you know, like this is this right now, this that's happening to us is, I think one of the first times where you know that not ever, nobody's really, really okay. Right. So, so to answer your question, I think it, this is the, it's harder. It was harder for me to show weakness and it's harder, I think for all of us to show weakness when we're going through something, when we think we're alone in it. And so when we have, whether it be a breakup or a divorce or, or a struggle or a loss of job or, you know, a terrorist or a, a distracted driver hitting you with a car, like anything that we're going through or loss of job, I'm sure there's a lot of those right now. It's so easy to think you're alone, but for the first time right now in this moment, we all are going through something collectively and it's a little easier for us to talk about. And so I hope going forward that we remember this time in knowing that we're all going to go through hard times and that it's kind of okay to say, I'm having a rough day. So for those people that are, that are feeling why me, like, just know you're not alone. Like it's the worst thing in the world ever. I think worse than being blown up by a terrorist and being hit by a car is feeling like you're crying alone. It's pretty much the worst thing in the world. We get emotional, but it's the worst thing in the world. There's nothing worse. So I think for people that are listening, I think um, just know that whatever you're going through now, you're not alone, but also later on down the road, 10 years down from the road, when this is hopefully passed through, whatever you're going through, it's somebody else out there has to. Just so beautifully put that I'm not even going to ask you any follow-up questions. I usually end <laughs> with these questions. I'm not going to do that. Okay. I love what you just said. It's, it's so true. It's so, I don't know. I just, I, I, I thank you for your thank wisdom you. and your ability to, to take your suffering and help other people with it. And uh, you just, you know, you're very honest, you know, there's there, I, I'm really appreciative that you're on this show. That's the, what you said at the end is really the, the whole point of, of me doing this show, which is to say, Hey guys, whoever you are, wherever you are, everybody's going through it. Nobody's life is yeah. perfect. Nobody's coming out yeah. unscathed. Sorry to say it, but nobody's coming out unscathed. Yeah, it's so and true. This is maybe it's true. Yeah. And so, and the way you put it is just so beautiful. I'm going to put links to all of your stuff in the show notes, but I've realized sometimes people, if they've gotten this far in the interview, hopefully they have, um, they may not take that extra step to go look in the show notes. So just tell us like the main places where people can connect with you. Um, I know if there are corporations out there, I know this seems to be on hold right now and your business is probably totally flatlined as a speaker. But if anybody, if there's a big head honcho yeah. of, a, of a, a company out there, I mean, who doesn't want Adrian speaking to their company? Like, come on, hire her for this. And Anything else that you have? Where's the best place to connect with you or follow you? Thank you so much, Matthew. Thanks. Um, I have loved being on here with you and I'm grateful for what you do to make people feel a lot less alone in this world. Um, that is the, 
that's the best thing we can make people feel. So I love it. Love it. Um, people can find me on, uh, I exist on Twitter. I'm not there very often, yeah. uh, but I'm at Adrian Haslett. That's A-D-R-I-A-N-N-E-H-A-S-L-E-T. And then I'm also on Instagram. I exist on Facebook, but I'm never on it. So I won't see you. So I hope you come over to Instagram. That's my, it's my addiction. I'm not quitting that anytime soon, but there's an email button there on Instagram or on my website, uh, adrianhaslett.com and, and all those consult consulting firms and big wig um, companies can find me there because companies getting through hard times is what I speak about. That's, that's my gig. So yeah, you're going to be, I, I have a feeling and I'll do my part to, to help this, but I have a feeling you're going to be very busy when we all come out of this because you're exactly what people need and your message is exactly what people need right now. And to deliver it through someone who's actually been through it, it's just got, um, so much authenticity. So Adrian Haslett, thank you so much for being on 10,000 Knows. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you so much. I'm happy to be here. What we do here is go back, 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 back. What a human. Okay, here we go. Top three takeaways. Number one, the fact that Adrian didn't do well in school when she was growing up. She had a ton of energy. She couldn't be contained. As parents, a lot of times we want our kids to do this or that really well. And if they don't, it's easy to think something's wrong. But school is just one tiny aspect of a child's development. The people that really knew me knew that I would find some niche to, to be able to be a dancer and, and, and marathon and do these things that I've done. Think about what she stands for now. That was all in her back then. But some of you may have had those same qualities and you bashed yourself for them and beat them right out of yourself. Own who you are. That's what I get from that. Number two, I think this may be the heart of the whole conversation and possibly the core of what I and so many others are inspired by in Adrian. I think for others that are going through something like this, it's important to prove to yourself that it can be done. You know, like it's important to show yourself that you're more than just that bad day. I mean, I say that stuff too, right? Persevere, resilience, be an example, but it carries so much more weight when it comes from someone who just happened to be in the wrong place at the wrong time, came back from that, happened to be in the wrong place at the wrong time again, came back from that, and then she's dealing with her finish line being moved yet again because of COVID like all of us. But through it all, she just keeps on chugging. I don't know about you, but I am blown away by her spirit, humbled by it. Okay, number three, despite all the great stuff I just told you about her, she's honest about her anger, about her frustration. First of all, I don't think it's unhuman to think why me. I mean, I definitely had that. She doesn't make you feel like she's above it. It's like my buddy Burns, he said about the Navy SEALs before he became one himself. Hopefully you heard that episode. He realized that they weren't super men. They were just men who did super things. And that's what Adrian is, a woman who honestly admits that she's afraid to do things, and yet she does them anyway. And the big tie-in for me with this community of 10,000 Nose listeners that I secretly think of as my 10,000 Nose army is that the way through it is in sharing your experience with the community. That's how we get through things. That's why you're listening right now. Worse than being blown up by a terrorist and being hit by a car is feeling like you're crying alone. It's pretty much the worst thing in the world. And to that, I will say, Adrian Haslett, you are not alone. 
And whoever you are, wherever you are right now, you, the listener, you're not alone either. At the very least, you got this community to commune with. So do it. If you've got a friend who also listens, reach out to them. Discuss this episode. Discuss Adrian Haslett's spirit. That's the point, guys. This isn't just a podcast. It's an excuse to take all that stuff you deal with on your own in a dark apartment with no one around you and bring it out into the light. Turn it into your art. I know there are artists out there listening to this, and I know there are powerhouse owners of huge companies listening to this who need this kind of fire to fire up their employees, especially right now. And I know some of you are just lonely. I know it because I get the emails all the time. You feel like the train left the station and you're not on it. Guess what? Another one will come. And when it does, you owe it to yourself to be ready to hop on. All right. I'm cutting myself off. I'm going to save my pump up talks for Monday morsels. That's all she wrote. Adrian, thank you. I cannot wait to see you kick ass in the Boston Marathon this fall. And if it gets delayed again, you're just going to have to wait a little longer to kick ass. Thank you all for listening. Check out the links in the show notes if you want more information about Adrian. Does anybody read the show notes? That's what I'm wondering. We put so much into it. I don't think anybody does. If you like this, please rate it. Give us a five-star review. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen so you don't miss any episodes when they come out every week. Last thing, for announcements and promo videos of who's next, it's always been on my personal Instagram at Maddie Dell. That is no longer happening. I'm I'm sure I will repost things, but you're going to do the Instagram is at 10,000 no's. So it's at 10000NOS. Please follow that. We've got someone else uh, running it for me. It's going to be a lot prettier than it used to be when I did it. You can also follow me um, on Twitter at Matthew Del Negro, Facebook and LinkedIn. Same thing at Matthew Del Negro. You can email us at info at 10,000nos.com if you want to be added to our mailing list or with questions, feedback, or guest suggestions. Um, Not promise you you're going to get your suggestion because we've got a huge queue of awesome guests, but it doesn't hurt to ask. And if you're looking for some style in your life coupled with some purpose maybe buy one of our t-shirts or hats at 10,000nose.com if you don't think it's the softest t-shirt you've ever worn i will let you punch me in the face i'm kidding i won't but it is pretty soft all right thanks again for listening next friday emmy award-winning actor dan bukatinsky from scandal among other things and if you want a brief little pump up like i said to start your week my monday morsels are back okay Del Negro out.